on this edition of Radio Survivor. It's 20 years to the day since Congress passed the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which devastated local radio. You took that local element out of radio, and by nationalizing the programming, yeah, they made it cheaper to operate, the profits went up, but they lost radio's character. And I, I to this day, believe that one of the reasons people have tuned away from radio is that it doesn't have its strongest element, that local nature. Jennifer Waits of College Radio Watch is rounding the bend and heading towards her 100th radio station visit. Jennifer values every single one of those tours, even the teeny tiny ones, where the staff are extremely humble. Just want you to know our station's really small and I don't want you to race here and Mm -hmm. be disappointed. And, you know, I think people don't realize that I'm not disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if, if it's like one room, it doesn't disappoint me. I... I find something interesting about every station visit. And finally, one expert called the last day of last month Bloody Sunday for small and medium-sized webcasters in the United States. We'll have an update on the latest. This is Radio Survivor. It's a program about great radio, radio that matters. From internet radio to low-power FM, college radio to community radio, even commercial radio when it's made by folks who care about their communities and care about broadcasting and <laughs> even, care about listeners. Even commercial radio when it's any good at all. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My name is Paul Reesmanel, and I'm one of your hosts and producers. My name is Eric Klein. I'm, I'm the other host and producer of the program. And uh, today's main story is an anniversary. And it's an anniversary of a piece of legislation. I can hardly believe it was passed 20 years ago. Yeah, the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Yes. And so if, if you don't know what it is and why it's important, stay tuned. Yes, we'll be talking with Christopher Terry. He teaches journalism at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. But we could say short version, it remade the radio landscape of the United States. Yes. If there's things that you hate about radio now, the roots Chances are probably are, yeah. in this legislation. But um, also later on, we will uh, hear from Jennifer Waits, our college radio correspondent, because she recently did a uh, tour, another tour of her of radio yeah. stations. And she's rounding the bend towards 100 radio station tours. This is amazing. Jennifer and I talked about. We're going to celebrate this in a big way. Because the fact is she has toured 100 college radio stations. Or community stations, and sometimes a commercial station or two. Okay. I don't know if she's counting all the stations in the 100 or just her college it's, radio The ones. vast majority is college okay. radio. But even a 100 radio tour, station tour. I would. I hope that maybe we'll find a way. I would love to see this become a book, <laughs> you know, or we should do maybe like a podcast documentary on it and, and talk with her. I don't know. It's, it's so amazing. And, you know, the, the kind of dedication that that shows. I mean, just Jennifer's passion, her interest, her deep knowledge, and, of course, the intelligence with which she attacks – her subject matter is inspiring and it's infectious when you're around it and we, we get to talking about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just fantastic. And I mean, this is like, to me, a lot of the core of what radio survivor is about. When we try to d- dig into these issues. We're also trying to dig in like this, like the anniversary of 96 telecom act to things that maybe it's been forgotten about or that many of us who've been watching radio for a long time, sort of take for granted the knowledge and the understanding of, of, of how these things have acted on our radio landscape, but we often uh, forget to kind of bring new folks, younger folks into the discussion. And we also 
forget about some of the unintended consequences, which I hope we'll get into a little later mm. on in the show. And that's what we're doing. This is why we do this podcast, why we do the website. And that's why I'm going to put in a pitch up front. We really could use your support. And especially, we want to see Station Tour 101. And Jennifer has done, you know, all of these nearly 100 radio station tours, basically self-funded. She, yeah. does, she, she, and, and she side goes trips. out of her, she goes out of her way or she makes side trips. Um, and we she really, drags her family along, kicking and screaming. Yeah. We, well, not always cause her, her daughter has helped her in many yeah, cases being, and enjoys doing it. But, but you know, these things don't come out with, come without a cost, both in terms of just the travel and in terms of the time and all, everything we do, you know, is, is time that we're taking away from, from work often and from other things that we do. Uh, because we care deeply about this and we really hope that you'll support that. I really hope you'll support Jennifer in particular, um, who, who puts in this kind of, of labor that is so rare, um, and is really doing this great historical work. Yeah, my favorite part about the radio station tours, which we'll hear later on in the show is that a lot of times she'll call up these stations and they'll be like, you do realize that we're just one room. That we're, there's really nothing here. You want to go on a tour, but the tour is going to take a minute and it, there's nothing really impressive here at our college station. And that to Jennifer means the world that, that, that someone who didn't even think they were worthy of being visited because they were such a tiny station. That's, that's the one that she's the happiest to see. Right. And, and then she finds that interesting, unique aspect, which then she shares with 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 a world that outside of that station's listenership probably would never know about. Yeah. And but she's really adding. I mean, she's adding to the historical record here and an important historical record about college media, about radio. And having done historical research myself on radio uh, years ago, I wrote a book chapter about how uh, the process by which the original ten watt stations called Class D stations how they stopped being how the FCC ended that class of license. Hmm. I researched uh, why it happened and how it happened. And it was so difficult to, to really fact check a lot of the assertions that were made, say in the record to the FCC where um, NPR, for instance, said, you know, they're mostly these high school stations. What or decade college was this taking place? Well? 1970s. Okay. Late 1970s. And where they would say all these, these small little high school stations or college stations, they don't do very much. They're right. mostly playing like top 40 music and they're really unprofessional. And so that's their contention. How well, was I going to possibly right. test that? Contention? If it's not written down and it's not in an air check. Where, where is it anymore? You know, I was very lucky that uh, at the time I was studying at the University of Illinois, which has an enormous, is the second largest academic library um, in North America, if not the world. And uh, and I was able to find like these forgotten master's theses from the 1970s where people had done surveys of college stations mm. Asking about like what they programmed and like just sort of, you know, and, and you know, it's sort of a basic kind of like 30 to 40 page thesis for a master's degree where someone was interested in finding out what do college radio stations actually do. So I could actually find that historical record, but it took months and months and months to uncover what what this this thesis that never was published really aside from maybe being in a couple of libraries or and I often had to get from interlibrary loan from whatever university yeah. It had been uh, written at and then sent over to the U of I. And I can't imagine if I had had this treasure trove 
of documentation of what college and community and, and some commercial stations even high school do, stations and high school stations forget. do yeah. so i hope i really hope you'll help jennifer do this and us to continue to support jennifer and continue to do this um so i'm putting my pitch at the beginning of the show hey how do they support the work paul well you can support us two different ways we certainly will accept and love to get a one-time donation anything you could afford would be great also though uh, a way that, that really helps us is when you can uh give us something on an ongoing a monthly basis basically sustain us become a patron of Radio Survivor. And whether that's a dollar a month or $10 a month or $20 a month, what you can afford really, really helps out because it allows us to make plans. It allows us to uh, see fiscally into the future and and make judicious, really, uh, decisions about how we invest this money in doing more for Radio Survivor. So go to radiosurvivor.com slash support and you'll find links both to that Patreon campaign where you can uh, donate for ongoing expenses or make a one-time donation using PayPal. We'd really appreciate it. Well, and then at the end of the show, I think I I definitely want to make sure that we catch up with a little bit of what's going on in internet radio. Right. So coming up uh, somewhere near the end of this program, we're going to talk about the the latest in the, in the, the ongoing, you know, regular listeners will be well aware, but if you, if you're just tuning into our program, uh, for the first time in a little while, uh, web radio has gone through an enormous and uh, there's just a, a shift, but there's also such a, a amorphous gray area to the shift. No one's 100% sure uh, what's going to happen, although everyone thinks that the business of uh, broadcasting on the internet has just... Um, has just gone up by quite a bit. If you're the, playing, the cost music. has gone up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the cost has gone up. So we'll we'll do some follow up with that after um, after we hear from Jennifer. But first up, we're going to speak with Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So. Why we wanted to talk with you today is about an anniversary that uh, is happening, I think, the day we release this show, February 8th, 2016, is the 20th anniversary of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. I can hardly believe it's been 20 years. And why we wanted to talk about it is because of its importance to radio, because what happened was it grossly changed radio ownership rules. Previously, there had been a cap that no company could own more than 20 AM and 20 FM stations nationwide. That cap was removed entirely, which allowed a company like Clear Channel to eventually grow to 1,240 stations nationwide in well, just about six years. And, and what that was was uh, something that might not be familiar to a lot of uh, younger radio f- uh, fans or aficionados that there really was a mom and pop type uh, radio culture in every city and town in the United States where where each station had its own unique uh, ownership management staff sound culture and that sort of all got wiped out and homogenized uh, over the years following uh, an oversimplification perhaps we can get more into yeah. the uh, how right or wrong that that generalization just was well and then the other important point is that there used to be there were there continues to be, but there was a much lower cap on how many stations someone could own in a single market, and it's basically a single city in the surrounding areas. So, with the largest markets now, after 1996, a uh, single company can own eight stations, a maximum of five on the FM dial. 
And, 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 and Christopher, you actually reminded us of this anniversary coming up. And this is something which sort of sits in the back of my mind all the time because I sort of lived through it and reminded of it all the time. But for a lot of folks who are new to radio and, and a lot of folks who, you know, were, were, were just kids at that time or maybe not even born yet, um, you know, they really don't know about the difference or aren't as aware of the difference. So I was hoping maybe you could help kind of paint this picture of, of why – this anniversary is important. Why, why did you decide to drop us a line and say, Hey guys, don't forget about this. Well, I think it's important from a radio perspective that it fundamentally changed the radio industry. So the removal of the 2020 rule in favor of a market based cap in which the largest markets could be eight stations in under one ownership fundamentally changed how radio operated as an industry. And it's important now, 20 years later, as the FCC is still wrestling with this issue and is set to go to court here again in just a couple of months on the fundamental issue of media ownership as a regulation issue, really important that we take a look back at the last 20 years so that we understand that we made some mistakes and don't make those same mistakes going forward. And so for somebody who for whom this is not something that they know about either your average radio listener or, or maybe, you know, somebody, you know, who is in college radio or is really lit up about, you know, podcasting, you know, and is, you know, in their twenties. Um, can you help kind of paint that picture of, of like, what, what does it mean to say that it changed the radio industry? Like what, how does somebody who is a listener or maybe wants to be a producer, how does it affect them? Well, the most fundamental way it changed radio is it took radio's most important character out of the equation. Radio, from its very inception, was a local-based media system. And you talked about the character that stations had, the little individual cultures, the little mom-and-pop operations. They were the face, you know, the, the design of the radio system. It was how it was implemented. It was how the system was supposed to work. And... After consolidation that came with the 1996 Telecommunication Act, you turned it into a nationalized industry where instead of 100 different stations producing content for each individual little market, you had essentially one or two big producers and the same content, same music, same playlist, same voice track announcer, same automation, everything going out to stations all across the United States. It Radio was not the same afterwards. And why did this have to happen? Why did the the elimination of this national ownership rule and the raising of the caps in local markets, why did that force these mom and pop operations? Why did it force local radio to go away? What, what was the process by which this happened? Well, that story is uh, predates the FCC. Congress did something with the 1996 Telecommunication Act that was different than any other time it had acted with statutory delegation to the FCC, Congress set the limits on what new ownership would be after the 96 Telecommunication Act was put into place. As to your question, what happened was is groups started consolidating and they started buying up everything in sight and lots of mom and pop operators just sold out because it was a seller's market. These companies that were absorbing stations at a rapid rate were paying top dollar, even above market value for stations to grab all they could. Little mom and pop operations saw cash on the table, cash on the barrel, and they sold out. And, it, you know, it 
it took a lot of the individual players out in favor of much larger companies that had planned to nationalize content. Which meant um, people at these individual stations uh, very quickly losing losing the work and, and the stations uh, going away. Well, part of the whole idea of consolidating stations was economy of scale, right? You take two stations, you put them into, take two individual stations, you put them together as one group. You don't need the extra secretary. You don't need an extra engineer. You got people who are there in the morning who can do the news in the afternoon. You can start getting rid of people. You're instantly making the station more profitable by cutting down on the labor costs. You take that, you do that a couple thousand times, and all of a sudden you've got a ton of stations under one roof with lots of people out of work. And that's part of the story. And so then how did this affect a listener? Right. So, so we have this process going on. It's this sort of economic process and much of it. I'm, you know, from that standpoint, it's opaque, right? Uh, when clear channel comes into a particular market and buys up eight stations and consolidates their operations, uh, you know, the average listener is unaware of whether there's eight engineers or one engineer or eight secretaries or one secretary. How did this start to affect what people actually heard? Well, programming wasn't being done at the local level now. It was being done at the regional and eventually at the national level. Let me give you one example. The station I worked for in Milwaukee, we, we got rid of our news people, and we were producing news through a clear channel newsroom in Cleveland, Ohio. And so our newscasts at the top of the hour, and I worked for an informational talk station, our newscasts weren't even being produced by people in Milwaukee. They were being produced by people in Cleveland, which generated a kind of a hilarious result in that specific example is that we tried to watch people from Cleveland, Ohio, say all of the Indian names for towns and stuff that yeah. we have in the immediate area. I mean, it was, it was painful how bad it was. You took that local element out of radio and by nationalizing the programming, yeah, they made it cheaper to operate. The profits went up. But they lost radio's character, and I, I, to this day, believe that one of the reasons people have tuned away from radio is that it doesn't have its strongest element, that local nature. And so that's a good example of how um, a news and information station would sort of be um, uh, lose its value to the listener. What about, what about music? Well, what about music? Uh, people who weren't in your town and didn't know the tastes that the local audience had were programming the station. And the playlist was the same in Cincinnati as it was in Milwaukee, as it was in Minneapolis, as it was in Seattle, as it was in San Diego, as it was in, you know, San Antonio. One playlist for any music format, any of the big formats, you know, whether it be top 40 or, you know, sort of your classic rock formats, mm -hmm. you know, that one person was making the decisions on that. Yeah, and, a loss of diversity. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I see these music documentaries often. I like to watch them. And, and always there's, you know, there's this moment that happens much time in these documentaries when somebody brought that first record, that yeah. first pressing into the local DJ who took a chance, right, to decide to play this new local artist. Um, did that go away? Well, absolutely. I mean, you didn't have an Alan Free, Moondoggy kind of approach to music distribution. You had deals being made between the record companies the sound promotion and concert promotion companies and the radio station conglomerates, which in many cases were actually the same company at the same time. There's, you know, there's the stories about Britney Spears only being able to uh, be interviewed by clear channel stations in a market when she'd roll into town. There was 
the Columbia case where uh, Shania Twain's people were meeting with radio executives and uh, the Citadel group was sort of asking what they could do for the record company to promote Shania Twain, but then have exclusive access to her in markets. And there was all kinds of stories like that. And, you know, that was a direct result of taking these local people out of this equation. I can also imagine a scenario, I'm wondering if it's true, that um, under these consolidations, uh, that that positions where African Americans and Latinos and women, for for to list a few uh, minorities in radio, where where there'd be less of of those people making the kinds of decisions to program uh, stations. Well, certainly, I mean, minorities include women in FCC ownership policy, but you know, there were they were no different than any of the old mom and pop stations that were around in the seventies and eighties. Those owners sold out to, you know, they saw the wave and they sold out too. Right. And the empirical evidence on media ownership is very clear. Women control less than 7% of radio stations in the United States now. Minority groups, it's a terribly low number. There's no African-American controlled broadcast television stations in the United States anymore. I mean, that's just, a, it's just ridiculous. But they're all direct legacies of these rules that were embedded in this 1996 le- legislation, which is up for... You know, it's 20th birthday this week. I'm wondering if we should turn now to talk a little bit about politics in 1996. What was going on in Congress that that this was possible? Well, you actually had some cooperation between the partisan groups in Congress. Uh, you had a relatively Republican Congress. You had a Democratic president who was very pro-business. Right. This would be or the least, Newt Gingrich era. Right. Um, you had a, you know, the the Clintons whatever you might think about them, politically left, right, center, they certainly were a pro-economic uh, White House at the time. And, you know, the, the justification for this is competition-era regulation. It's sort of the legacy of Mark Fowler's ideas that started with deregulation in the 80s. Who's Mark Fowler? He was the chairman of the FCC under Reagan. And, uh, you know, he started the deregulation trend for our broadcast media, and competition era regulation, which is based entirely in economic theory, was a, sort of the end result of that. And that was implemented in the 1996 Communi- Telecommunications Act. In fact, when the FCC considers ownership policy under Section 202H, a little buried paragraph in this massive document, they have to make decisions on ownership rules based on economic competition, based on the effect on economic competition. They can't do that. They don't have delegated powers to do anything on media ownership anymore. So what was the justification, though? So here we have a medium goes from being mostly local, especially in FM radio, where with local representation and local staffing to within the span of, of, of only about five to six years becoming utterly sort of nationalized and delocalized. What was the justification made in Congress that and, and who made this justification that these ownership limits should go away, that, that this process should be kicked off? Well, that's a process that starts in the 1980s when Mark Fowler is chairman of the FCC. He brings a regulatory or a deregulatory philosophy to the agency. He's something they've never had as FCC chair. He's not a lawyer. He's not a regulation expert. He's not even a technical expert. He's an economist. And he, he starts to change how the FCC does business by bringing in economics. And that culminates in 96. Broadcasters were struggling a little bit. They were competing with early versions of cable. 
And the sort of the justification in Congress is, well, if we get rid of some of these regulatory burdens, we'll allow these broadcasters to make more money. And then at some point, they'll be able to reinvest that money back into programming and we'll, everybody will win, right? And just, just to put a fine point on it, the broadcast, when you say the broadcasters, I mean, is that, is that the mom and pop stations and your NPR stations? The National Association of Broadcasters. Okay, so so you're talking about a national lobbying group right. that that principally represents whom? Larger media companies, because they're the ones who who foot the bill for the existence of the NAB, right? Absolutely, right. And that's it, certainly been more true since '96 than it was before '96, but it was true before 1996 as well. So you have the sort of proto clear channels, um, which at the time might've been companies like infinity broadcasting, um, who, who said, well, you know, we're capped out. We have our 20 AM stations or 20 FM stations. And, uh, we feel as though, uh, we would do better economically and, and broadcasts would be more sustainable if we could have 40, 60, hundred, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, the consolidation, I think part of the story and one part that doesn't get told enough is how quick it happened. The rules are implemented in February of 1996. Takes the FCC a little bit of time to interpret them and start the process. But consolidation of radio was essentially completed by 2001. It was under five-year span. And I know you've heard me tell the story before, but at one point in radio, in the span of six paychecks, I actually worked for five different companies. That's how quick it was consolidated. And, you know, I think the reality of the consolidation outpaced the FCC's ability to see what they were doing. They were just following their directive from Congress without a consideration on what it was going to do to the content that the people that bought up all the stations were going to produce. You know, I think a lot of people often target the FCC as the bad guy. Right. And and I'm not going to come on necessarily as, as to defend the FCC, but. There's a version of this that you can look through a certain lens where you say, well, the FCC, to some extent, simply was handed orders from Congress. This was not an FCC rule per se that vastly deregulated uh, radio at that time. It was an act of Congress and President Clinton that, that kicked it off. Absolutely. But the FCC was, as the administrative agency in charge of implementing it, they could have taken a slower path to this than they did. They were very excited about the prospect of consolidating stations to allow them to make more money. In fact, they justify hundreds of radio mergers initially just on the basis that economy of scale will generate more money for the new owners that will somehow end up back in programming. In one case out in Spokane, Washington, they allowed two stations to merge owners at one point just on the justification that if there were only one office, they would save money on office supplies. So while Congress, that's a real thing, if Congress wants to, Congress certainly gets a share of the blame and they deserve more of it than they get. But the FCC didn't do their due diligence on implementing these rules. And so I point the finger at both of them very clearly. So we've, we've laid out the case that um, radio became much less diverse because there were just less uh, owners and less people making the radio. And then we've also made a case that uh, listening to the radio got a lot more boring because it was so homogenized. I'm wondering about um, the difference between radio, the business of radio in 1995, as opposed to uh, after this act. Um, what what happened to the ability of a radio station to make profits 
um, from well, advertising, for instance. The uh, the FCC ran the table on mergers using economy of scale consolidating stations as a justification. It kind of got to a point to where they couldn't find enough ways to justify station mergers on that. So to answer your question, what they did was they started consolidating, allowing consolidations of groups of stations that allowed those two top competitors to essentially control 99.5% of the advertising market, which, of course, allowed them to raise prices and drive up uh, you know, the profits that they were making off the same advertising that they had always been selling because they were the only two deals in town in many cases. They... People who wanted to advertise, car dealers, you know, local shops, they had to do business with these newer groups, and the rates went skyrocketing. The FCC's own evidence proves that. So when you say they, they were able to cooperate, I mean, so if, I, if I'm a car dealer, right, and, and we use that example because car dealers are one of the biggest uh, radio advertisers around in almost any market, and I, you know, want to go buy ads in, in a particular city, are you telling me that I was mostly only dealing with one group for two groups of stations, or... or? Yeah. Yeah, in many cases, because of the consolidation that had happened, there would be two large groups in a, in a city and maybe a couple of small competitors that couldn't deliver the same kind of service that the big groups did. And when there's less competitors, there's less competition for price, and, of course, the price of the ads went up. So is this analogy accurate? Does it then become sort of like Clear Channel, which is now iHeartMedia, is like Walmart, in, in a, and especially in a sort of more of a mid-sized market um, and your mom and pop radio station or your small station group at that time is like the local pharmacy, which can't quite compete on price and on customer service in certain ways compared to the new Walmart down the street. Well, that certainly was what, what happened. But lots of the mom and pop people beat that to the punch. They saw the writing on the wall and knew they weren't going to be able to compete with a six station, eight station group in their town. So they were on the list of people who sold out. And what happened to advertising rates? And so we're using this sort of metaphor because one of the things that Walmart is known for, of course, is, is low prices every time, driving down the prices of all sorts of goods uh, in order to beat competition. What happened to advertising prices? Well, if you believe the FCC's own evidence on this, it, uh, it, they, the prices of advertising went up and substantially, that there wasn't a reduction in price. It didn't become Walmart. It same, sort of became Saks Fifth Avenue, sort of maybe Tiffany's even, uh, to buy radio advertising became a very expensive proposition in, after consolidation. Um, but what about in the years, uh, you know, in the decades following? Was that always the case? Well, after the ratings began to slide, as people started to turn away from radio, the ratings, the, the ad rates went down some. But that was a direct result of the fact that radio wasn't delivering the same audiences that it was before. Mm. And now today... Uh, you know, we talk about Clear Channel, which is now iHeartMedia. Um, they no longer have 1,200 stations. They've actually spun some off, um, in some cases sold some off in order to get some other stations. They're down to about 840 stations. Yeah, we've reached the high water a mark. A mere 840. But it's also a company which has $21 billion in debt. What happened? Well... The thing, the story of Clear Channel and later iHeartMedia is that Clear Channel and AMFM Incorporated were competing to become the biggest and essentially paying over market value for stations to buy them up and consolidate them under one roof. And they ended up with 
a lot of stations. At one point, they had 1,346, that some of which they had to get rid of to come under the market cap. But they'd paid top dollar for those stations. And they couldn't turn enough of a profit to service that debt. And that's why they sold off a few of those stations. But the story of Clear Channel is bigger than the number of stations that they own. Remember, one of the things that doesn't get talked about with the Telecommunications Act and radio is that rules on content distributors and station owners were also removed as part of this process, which meant that Clear Channel only owned 1,200, 1,300 radio stations, but because they were syndicating programming through Premier Radio Networks out to about 5,000, about half of all radio station, commercial radio stations in the United States were getting some form of programming from Clear Channel. Wow. So if you don't like radio, you don't like Clear Channel. Well, it's, I mean, that, that became the reality yeah. in the early 2000s. That really became the reality. You either had clear channel programming or you, you know, about half of all stations in the, you know, in the United States, commercial stations. So if this was such a good idea, cooked up by an economist uh, and, and justified by economic theory, why is a company like Clear Channel and its competitors like Cumulus Broadcasting why are they so significantly in debt? Well, because they spent all the money to buy the stations when they bought them. But shouldn't that have allowed them to to proceed with this uh, free market theory of consolidating operations, uh, which therefore means driving down the cost of operation and driving up the, the profits? Shouldn't that be what, what, what happened? Well, we didn't make really good choices on who we gave the stations to, and they weren't really good at the business. You know, they thought market power would have seeded. it. And it's, it's the ultimate irony of this, to be talking about this 20 years later, that it is the free market theory that has essentially crushed these companies themselves. They exceeded their ability to deliver on the product that they were trying to deliver on. It became too big for their own good. And, you know, we're still living with that legacy today. Selling a product that doesn't sell. Right. Well, I mean, when you lose radio's local power, you're losing its character. There's lots of other mechanisms, especially today, 20 years later, for you to get the music that you're looking for, for you to get the news that you're looking for. And the things that made radio the, the medium that it was, that competed with television well into the 90s, was that it was locally based. That announcer was there. He knew the name of your town. He knew how to say the name of your town. And he knew, you know, he knew what it meant if there was an accident in an interchange. Right? He, he knew what kind of music people listened to. He knew things about your town. He took that all away. You have voice tracked everything. There wasn't even an announcer there anymore. It often, killed radio. Right. Killed often character. that right. voice came from hundreds of miles away. Someone voice tracked it in Indianapolis to be played in San Antonio. Well, you can hear my accent. I mean, I'm mm. from Wisconsin. You can hear my accent. If I heard somebody on the radio that didn't have an accent that sounds like mine, I knew they weren't from here. You know, people aren't dumb. They, they can figure that out. They they can tell when somebody in San Diego is voice tracking in Minneapolis, right? And so now, 2016, 20 years later, um, what, we have seen what has happened to the radio dial. And often in a radio survivor, we, 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 we talk about this all the time. There's always this, this sort of uh, meme, radio is dead, radio is dying, right? As, as, as if it's some sort of fait accompli or some sort of unavoidable uh, sort of decline of any old media. Like print. Like print is dead, radio is dead. Yet, you know, 
more than 90% of the American public listens to radio during the week. They may not listen like they did in, in 1995, but they still listen. So we have this medium that, that in some cases has a lot of value, right? It, whether it's as a news service, as an information service, and as well as still an entertainment service as a way to connect with one's community, often on a non-commercial end of the dial, but still with some, you know, some commercial outlets that still do that. The question I have for you, is this an inevitable decline that we're facing kicked off in 1996? Is the horse out of the barn? Are we never going to be able to get it back in? Or is there some hope for regaining some of radio's lost luster that was that was brought on by this Telecommunications Act? Well, you need the people who are running radio to recognize what's missing from the equation even today is that local aspect. But in terms of the larger question you're asking me, yes, there is hope. Um, later this year, the FCC is going to go back to court. Third Prometheus case ends up in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. The FCC essentially has to put up or shut up and put some evidence on the table that says what they've done over the last 20 years had a positive effect. They obviously don't have that evidence because it can't be generated. And, you know, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals is going to give the FCC or is likely to give the FCC some marching orders on fixing some of the problems that they've created. And I think that might start a trend that you'll see some stations broken off from some of these larger groups, especially the ones that are in deep, deep debt. You'll see some local operators come in, maybe smaller people, people who didn't get LPFMs, who can get one of these stations either through a tax sale or an SBA sale and get it started. And we'll see local radio start to come back. It's not dead. As you point out, 290 million people listen or broadcast radio in a week in this country. That number hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. And, you know, there's there's an opportunity here for people if they want to take it. Um, it's just, you know, we, we need a couple of things to fall into place this year. So, so we have a court challenge uh, that the Prometheus Radio Project brought, uh, challenging some of the uh, FCC's implementation of ownership rules, and they're due back in court. And is it your sense that the current FCC, is this like a Mark Fowler, Reagan-esque FCC. Is this an FCC, do you think, that has its interest in defending uh, this free market ideology as, as a means for regulating radio? Or do you think that perhaps we have an FCC that uh, recognizes uh, some of the devastation that's been wrought in the last 20 years? Well, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think uh, Tom Wheeler is sort of wrestling with this. He said today that uh, he was nervous about the charter Time Warner merger because he was afraid it was going to reduce diversity. And, that, and that's a, a merger, uh, but a uh, proposed companies. merger of cable companies, right? But, it, you know, the FCC's delegation right now is to regulate media for economic reasons. And, you know, they kind of have to play, play that game a little bit. But at the same time, you know, I think the recognition is, is that we tried this and it didn't work out real well. It was a was a reasonable theory. I don't think it was a great theory, but it didn't work, you know, and we're sort of at the point now with the Prometheus case coming up for its second review or actually third review, depending on how you count in the third circuit, the FCC is at a point where it has to deal with this now. And, you know, although they're trying to run off the clock on the Obama administration in favor of a new FCC, the issue really doesn't go away unless they're going to take radio spectrum out of the equation, repurpose it for something like they're going to do with some television spectrum. Radio is going to be around and the situation is going to have to be dealt with. Well, Christopher, 
I really appreciate you dropping us a line and reminding us of this momentous anniversary of of this of of this piece of legislation that has had these deep reverberations and and I think our culture because yeah. radio is so central um, and and risk going forgotten. So um, I really appreciate you informing us about that and uh, really hope maybe you can help us understand better um, when the FCC is back in court in Philadelphia in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. I'd, uh, I'd love to talk about that after we have oral argument and then again after the decision comes out, if you guys will have me back. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, we'll have you back. No problem. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Jennifer, welcome to Radio Survivor. Thank you so much. Yeah, always so fun. So today you're on the podcast because you are going, you're imminently about to have your 100th radio station visit. I know. The excitement is building. <laughs> I know that I know that you are dying to know what station number 100 will be. Oh, my, oh are you ready to <laughs> reveal it today? On, no. On the, oh, <laughs> No, if I if I tell you, I will have to kill you. <laughs> what was radio station number one that you visited? The very first radio station tour um, was in 2008, and it was WECB at um, Emerson College in Boston. Uh huh. And so, and when we and when we say a tour, it's not just a, the first radio station you were inside of. This was maybe like the first time you were visiting as a as a writer. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I was writing my blog, Spinning Indie, uh, which I started in 2008. And I think actually I had read about somebody at another radio station who went on a tour, like a field trip mm-hmm. um, with people from his radio station to visit people at another radio station. And I think that's what inspired me um, because I was I, I have DJed at a bunch of different stations over the years. So part of why I started writing about college radio was to try to write about a variety of stations from all over the country, from small little pockets. Um, and so when I heard about this person visiting a station as sort of a field trip experience, I think I think that's what sparked it. I, I, I thought to myself, oh, that's that's another great way to expose people to stories about different stations is by going out and tracking down some of these stations Mm -hmm. and, and purposefully my first station was a very much under the radar student run station. Um, cause Emerson, Emerson college has a big station on campus too, that also has student involvement. It might even be student run. Um, you know, but the other station at Emerson has a big FM signal, but I visited WECB, which was like, you know, had like one room and was online only and nobody had ever heard of it. <laughs> ah, so that's that's really one of the things that you're up to is is shining a light on on the humble uh, stations of of the world. Yeah, the stations people might not have heard about. And it's funny, you know, I'm I'm plotting out some station tours right now and and somebody wrote back and they said, Well I just want you to know our station's really small and I don't want you to race here and mm-hmm. be disappointed. And, you know, I think people don't realize that I, I'm not, um, I'm not disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if it's like one room, it doesn't disappoint me. I, I find something interesting about every station visit and, 
you know, I think in a very recent podcast, I was talking to you about a really tiny station that I saw in Kentucky that was just right. sort of in the corner of a student center. Um, and they had no space to speak of. And that's super interesting to me. Right. Well, and so, in that particular case, you were you were very pleased with the enthusiasm of the young people who made that station their home, that that for them, uh, it was as exciting as the other young people that you met who had um, much, much fancier uh, facilities to make use of. Yeah, and I see enthusiasm everywhere, but I think, um, I don't know, there's something to be said for being scrappy. And, oh, yeah. And certainly my first college radio experience was scrappy and you know, nobody could hear us really. Mm -hmm. um, so. so after after all of these years and all of this work, uh, you know, you know something more about the scrappy radio stations of of the United States than I do. What what have you learned about scrappy radio stations? Yeah, um. in general, but also the. <laughs> I guess you've also seen some night. You know, even the big ones that don't worry uh, month to month about the money. I'm sure they're just as scrappy in their own way. Oh yeah, um, and it's funny, you know. I I think I've talked about this before. There are certain things that there are certain artifacts and objects that I'm always delighted to see, yep. and I'm always curious to see the radio station couches, for example. <laughs> often some really disgusting couches. Um, and one of the grossest couches I saw was at a commercial radio station. There I've, you go. I've actually been to a few commercial stations and um, one of them had a really gross couch. So, so even commercial radio, you know, isn't necessarily slicker um, than these other scrappy stations. Uh, so just to tell you kind of a bit more about all of these tours I've been on uh -huh. at this point, I've written up 97 uh -huh. official tours. Um, and I've actually written up more than that, but there are a few in there. My numbering system is is a bit odd because if I revisit a station, let's say a station moves to a new building or an entirely new location, um, there are a couple times that I've I've gone to see that new station, mm -hmm. and so then I number it 0.5. So I have a few of these sort of half <laughs> sure ha half visits. Um, that makes perfect sense to me. So I've written up more than a hundred, but uh, you know, if you look at my my proper numbering system, it's only to 97. And and I was just doing kind of a, a guesstimate. Um, but I would say around 66 of those visits were to college radio stations. Mm -hmm. And then the other remaining visits are to community radio stations, high school radio stations, pirate radio stations, commercial radio stations, and one religious station. Uh -huh. So it's, it's it's a variety of stations, but the bulk has been college radio. And that's, you know, every time I, I go out of town and I have time, I try to schedule visits to radio stations. And my priority is always college radio first. Right. Um, so right now I'm, I'm going to be out of town coming up and I'm having a great time fantasizing about how many radio stations I might be able to visit. That's wonderful. Uh, um, and I won't have my family with me, so I won't have people, you know, who are upset about me. Dragging you down, making yeah. sure you only get to visit two radio stations in a day. Yeah. So oh, and, and speaking of uh, that, that, my third radio station tour in 2008 
was to WVFI at Notre Dame University, and that's where my husband went to college. Mm. And we were on campus actually for his dad's funeral. Um, and and I was like, oh, um, do you want to try and see the radio station? <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds so terrible, right? Um, and now this is eight years later, so I can laugh. But, you know, it sounds so terrible, but my husband had DJed at that station. So, and and obviously it was a very sad and stressful time. Um, yeah. And we had time after the funeral. So he was like, yeah, we should totally try to see the station. So we went and visited. Um, and my daughter was two years old at the time. And I have this amazing picture of her that's in my field trip post of her passed out on the radio station couch face down. So it's funny, actually, as a parent to think about it, because here she was at age two. We were kind of worried. Uh, we're not going to be able to tour the station. She's going to be distracting us. And then she ended up saving us by passing out on the couch. Mm-hmm. Um, and now when I take her, she wants to hold the microphone and conduct interviews. Right. So it's interesting to see like her life <laughs> through the lens of these radio station tours. Aw. And yeah. you, so you're talking about the numbering system earlier. Does KUSF, the the college station in San Francisco, count as a half seas? Did you visit it uh, in its previous incarnation? Yeah, I just wrote up a post about my visit to KUSF.org at University of San Francisco. And yes, it's a half visit because I initially visited that station in 2009. Mm. So quite a long time ago. And it was radio station field trip number nine for me. And it was at a time when I was doing a flurry of San Francisco Bay Area visits. Um, So that was one of them. I've actually visited KUSF a whole bunch of times. I did that official visit in 2009. And then maybe, I don't know, in 2010, I think, I brought some people from KFJC to Mm -hmm. KUSF. And we ended up getting an even more extensive tour where we got to see these hidden secret um, storage areas up kind of in the attic. What what did they keep in the secret storage areas? Oh, my God. Well, it was this huge space that was full of actually mostly records. Mm-hmm. So and vinyl, like, like paper records or vinyl records? Vinyl. Oh, yeah. and, and they had received some donations of vinyl from other radio stations, too, like mm. commercial radio stations. So it was all this sort of deep storage of vinyl. And then there was also um, lots of engineering stuff up there. So old parts, um, wow. you know, like vacuum tubes. There was... So uh, those, you know, so the short version of KUSF's story is that uh, very controversially, that college radio station uh, went off the air, but, but, the, but they have an internet station. Did they get to keep the same physical space? In the transition? No, no. So KUSF was an FM station for decades. Um, in 2011, it got shut down and the license was ultimately sold. And then soon after that, um, the studio was destroyed. Um, it, KUSF was located in Phelan Hall, which uh, is a dorm. Mm-hmm. And they said they needed the space for other things. So everything was removed from that building. Um, And then they created new spaces for KUSF in a couple of other buildings. So so I visited 
um, in September, actually, and just got around to writing up my visit. Um, I visited KUSF.org in September of 2015, and there are now offices in one building, like a small office where the general manager sits, is in one building. And then in another building, they have a very small studio. So it's it's the studio, and then it's kind of surrounded. The walls contain CDs and a little bit of vinyl. So it's a much smaller space. Um, the former KUSF space was massive. You know, they had... I don't know if it was an entire floor yeah. um, just for like the main part. And then they had like the secret part. Yeah. Um, when upstairs. I, when I took a tour, uh, like in there, there was like a break room and there were gold records up on the wall from like REM and the bangles and like the oh, Beastie yeah. Boys because, because uh, it was like recognition from the labels, I suppose that, that KUSF had played a role in surfacing these, these hits from the eighties. They still have in the KUSF office today, they still have some gold records. I can't remember which ones, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the stuff that I saw at the old KUSF is in the new KUSF. Um, they still have a Leo Blaze sign, you know, the 3D yes. hand-constructed KUSF. That's there. We'll have to have a link in the show notes. You've written about Leo Blaze. He was, he was I, a, you, you, you solved the mystery. You were a detective of Radio Survivor. <laughs> Because you were finding these um, very unique yeah. but very specific cardboard sculptures of of call letters every radio station you visited. Yeah, and actually, a reader wrote in and gave me the best clue as to who had had created them. So, mm-hmm. so the whole Radio Survivor community, and then you know, now I have people texting and emailing me pictures of Leo Blaze signs they see in various places. Right now that it's your thing, <laughs> I've got scouts out there. Um, so yeah, you know, it was great visiting KUSF.org. Um, they officially launched in 2012. So it's been three years that they've been operating as an online only station Mm -hmm. and it seems to be doing really well. I was, I was pleased to hear that, um, they've got a really large group of students who are interested in the station. Um, the general manager, Miranda Morris told me that, in fall 2015, they collected 250 emails from interested students. <laughs> oh, great. So if people want to learn more about uh, new KUSF, they can check out your station tour. Uh, Jennifer, you have to you have to give us a hint about what's coming up for, for station tour number 100. What, <laughs> what, what, what do you have planned? Or at least 99. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. Um, I So this KUSF post was my last visit for 2015, so I was very Mm-hmm. Please to finally get caught up. So number 98, number 99, and number 100 are all stations that I have yet to visit. So, oh. so that's my hint. Um, and I guess another hint is that I'll be traveling to the East Coast for the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference. Right. So excited about that. I would guess that stations that I might be seeing during that trip to the East Coast will will be in that 98, 99, 100 zone. Well, stay tuned. I I suppose (laughs) if people follow you spinning indie uh, on Twitter, they'll get some clues. Oh, yes, yes. But yeah, it's a lot of pressure. You know, when I I did my 50th post, I tried to make it significant. Um, And I ended up visiting 
writing about a station that had a pretty interesting history. Which so I guess that's, that? um, it was, uh, the college radio station at St. Mary's college and in California. And I had visited twice and, and worked hard to get interviews with some people who knew, um, about the founding of the station. And so it took me a long time to put the post together so that was a nice one to do for the 50th because it felt like, okay, I put a lot of work into this. So it does, it deserves a significant number. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go and read a, a handful of your radio station tours now. Now I'm excited. And if, if, if listeners want to do the same, go to the website, go to radiosurvivor.com. Well, Jennifer, uh, have fun. If we don't say hello to one another uh, before you go to the Radio Preservation Task Force conference, uh, please have a good time for me and, and take lots of notes. Oh, thank you. Spall, before we conclude the program today, you you had uh, more to add to the internet radio story we've been covering in 2016. Yes, I do. You know, so just to back up a little bit, so to bring people up to date if they haven't uh, been listening to the last few shows, the rate that small and medium-sized internet radio broadcasters who are pure play, as they call, which means they don't have a, a terrestrial broadcast signal. They are online only. The rates that they pay in exchange for playing music have gone up massively in the new year, in 2016. The new rates were decided really just at the last minute, just about, in 2015. And commensurate with that, a piece of legislation which uh, sort of lowered the rates for these small broadcasters ended. So its effective last effective date was December 31st, 2015. As okay. a result – because. Uh uh, when internet broadcasting first began, it was sort of a wild west. There yeah. were no rules, and then they came up with some rules, and uh, and small webcasters had some space to operate, pay pay for their songs, but also well, not in have most to cases, pay too much. Yeah, and in most cases, they had to fight for that, right? Because the rules are sort of being written with with either your Pandora's in mind or the kind of the the clear channel of internet radio, and then now clear channel, which does internet radio, <laughs> iHeartMedia, um, in mind, and not really thinking about small entrepreneurs. Yeah. Or, I guess or I wanted to just get into the introduction to the story, the idea that um, here we are all over again, where yes. where what small webcasters and medium sized webcasters are going through uh, is familiar, but but new territory. Yeah, it, it, and it's new territory because the rates have gone up, and so it means for many stations to be paying something on the order of ten times as much in music royalties uh, in order to stay on the air if they are if they play basically any commercially released right. music. So we're we're one month into the year. We're one month into those new rates, mm-hmm. and uh, you had you had asked the theoretical question: Is this is this sort of an Armageddon for small webcasters in twenty sixteen? Well, is there more information now? <laughs> I wish there were there's there's more news. I wouldn't okay. say there's more information. So Kurt Hansen is a longtime internet radio industry observer as well. He uh, operates a uh, internet radio station group called AccuRadio. Okay. Um and he is the person who behind the radio and internet newsletter. 
um, which is something that he started. Rain. Yeah, Rain. And they do they do great coverage. It's yeah. industry coverage for internet radio, and they have some great journalists working there. Um, and they really have provided some of the some of the best coverage of this issue. And uh, Kurt Hansen uh, declared January thirty first, Sunday, January thirty first, as Bloody Sunday. Okay. Because that was the day when Live 365, which I think we talked about last week. A big, huge presence in the internet radio broadcasting. Yeah, a a platform uh, that a lot of small and medium-sized webcasters used. Uh, They would provide both the hosting of your stream as well as uh, take care of your royalty payments for you. And the paperwork and stuff. And the paperwork in exchange for just sort of a monthly fee. Well, they ended. Live 365 said very specifically – it was both losing funding right. combined with now the new royalty rates, which made it impossible for them to stay in business. So they went down. 5,000 independent webcasters went off the air and offline on January 31st. And those people could look for a new home if they wanted to go through that yes, legwork. Yes, right. For those who, who, who might – and some had you know prepared for it in advance. Some used Live 365 in addition to other platforms. But for many, uh, especially small webcasters, Live 365 was the most sort of cost-effective way of being uh, on the internet, on the air, so to speak. Yeah. And so that was an, an enormous uh, dropout. As well, uh, another service, a smaller one called Got Radio, and it was uh, an aggregation of about 48 different music channels, mm-hmm. also went off the air. Okay, so it is happening. It is happening, and we're hearing reports of, of dozen, like, niche, dozens of niche and single uh, sort of channel ones. I've written about some of them, like uh, there was smoothjazzchicago.net. Right. Um, there's also Pulse 87 in New York City, which was more of an electronic dance music station. Um, and sort of the, uh, the, the, you know, it's harder to find these cause they don't always make announcements that they go off the air. Then they, then they, they just sort of go silent and maybe someone notices or doesn't. In the case of, uh, Smooth Jazz Chicago, they put up an announcement on their website and Pulse 87 talked to journalists. But as well, there was some other, uh, services that went offline, not necessarily because of this rate change, but, there's sort of examples of how internet radio is this shifting and changing landscape. So the last day for the free version of iTunes music was January 31st. Ah. It's really just a coincidence that it's the same day as live 365. Uh, and iTunes down. music hasn't been around for very long. So it's no. hard to miss it. Well, yeah, pretty much uh, the story with live three with, with it's like um, a year. It's like one, like yeah, six months, yeah, a little longer than that. Yeah, yeah. no, no, it's, it's longer than that. But yeah, but the, 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 it's now going to be a uh, paid service only. Mm-hmm. So you can subscribe, but the ad uh, supported free version went away as well. Well, uh, there was a service called Songza, um, which provided sort of mood-based uh, radio services. You could sort of say, well, I'm, you know, I'm like cleaning my house and I'm in a mood for like upbeat, you know, indie rock and yeah. it serve you up a playlist. Workout music. Well, they get acquired by Google last year. And so the service went offline also January 31st. There you go. Uh, the features are being absorbed into Google's Play service. So that's Google's um, subscription music service. Uh, but again, it will become subscription only in that case. Um, so we've got like this big shifts going on, some brought on by uh, this change in royalties and some sort of because it's sort of a shifting uh, ground there. And, and I think what, what you kind of take out of this is that actually doing internet radio from the little webcaster all the way up to apple sized 
is expensive. Mm -hmm. And what really seems to be under threat is any sort of free, whether it's free by donation or free by ad support, because the economics seem not to be actually working out very well. This is one of your hobby horses. Well, and, and you've been on this one. This I, is, this is I an have, idea that you've been not, I wouldn't want to say you're pushing it. It's an, it's a prediction that you've, uh, that you predicted about a year back and it's bearing out. Well, so my initial prediction was that free on demand music. So yeah. the Spotify model is not actually sustainable. The, the, the commercials, the Spotify with commercials model. Yeah. Right. Where you get the on demand. Yeah. Right. But now I'm starting to even wonder if ad supported non on demand. So there are different rates that they pay. So yeah. if you have a station where you can't choose the exact song, right. Then that station pays a different rate. Uh, in royalties than Spotify does for the yeah. on-demand service. It's basically the Spotify versus the Pandora model, if you want to Right, so Pandora that. pays a lower rate, although that rate did go up. Um, but it does pay a lower rate than Spotify Music does. for free is not going to last. And for me, you know, on, on the on-demand side, I don't really cry a lot of tears. It's sort of, it's sort of nice to have. It's sort of a, uh, you know, it's convenient as a listener. But I also understand how it's not necessarily always a fair deal to musicians. Um, and I do think there's a difference between radio style curated, whether they are stations in quotes or whether it's an actual DJ playing is different than the on demand. Mm -hmm. And I think they should pay different rates. I would, I'm a little upset if it turns out that internet radio that is free in the United States, whether it's because people donate to it or because someone decides it's their hobby yeah. or it's because it's a, uh, it, they are able to find advertising. It's a very grassroots medium that it's in is some ways, very yeah. new yeah. and might be getting choked off before it's time. Right. I would hate to see that go away. Um, and I'm really starting to wonder if it is a sustainable business uh, as it is now. And I suspect maybe it is a sustainable business to have uh, – you know, the real radio like services like a Pandora style at that level, right? At the level at which they can attract national advertisers. And, you know, and also, you know, they have investor funding. It, that may indeed turn out to be stable. What I'm concerned about is really the folks smaller than that yeah. who, you know, maybe have ad funding because they can't get donations. Uh, sufficient and where that used to be able to maybe be enough, maybe not to maybe even turn a profit, but at least cover their basic costs. Well, now it won't even cover their costs. It's a real loss of diversity. Right. It's a real loss of new ideas, of innovation, um, and you know perhaps is raising the bar for even new startups. So if someone says, "Okay, we're we're looking for funding that might be more in the millions of dollars to create new internet radio," well, maybe that that. You know that bar is gone, going up, 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 up to the point which it may be a bad investment, in which you know folks who who are willing to uh, venture their capital won't want to venture their capital because of these costs. And right now, we don't know if there's going to be a change. Um, there are some. Uh, there's like a change.org petition. There's a site, a new website called RadioDiversity.org, which is trying to organize uh, on behalf of right. especially small and medium sized webcasters to try and get a change in the rates. But right now, it's all still up in the air. About two episodes ago, what was uh, precisely two episodes ago, we spoke with someone from Stream Licensing, which is one of the one of the larger presences in the 
in the world of webcasting, and they're and, saying, and especially for small and medium sized yeah, webcasters, and, and they're cautioning. They're they're they're. they're uh, I don't want to say cautiously optimistic because that might be the wrong set of uh, cliches to describe, but but they're saying uh, don't give up yet. Right. Well, I mean, and in part, you know, if history is a guide, there have been new rates uh, that have been worked out. Yeah. Right. For small and medium sized webcasters, where they were able to pay a percentage of their revenue, right, and in rather the, than just a flat rate that that paid no regard to their revenue. And in the past, uh, this happened after the deadline had already been uh, blown through, just like this deadline just got blown through. So it's always possible. Yeah. That and, and, something and it, something would come out in the end, but not without effort. Not without effort. Not without organizing. Anger or. Uh, Frustration. Uh, PR campaigns. Yeah. Which I, which I was a party to uh, w- back in the 20, 2007 time, I think, when this happened. Yeah. I don't think we've seen this, but, you know, Live 365 going down yeah. is, is sort of a really, it's sort of an ominous bellwether, as is, you know, many of these other sort of well known, you know, small regional web broadcasters as well. I don't think we've seen this kind of turnoff. Right. Um, and I think I fear that internet radio is something that we've, that has become, it's just old enough to be taken for granted. Huh? Interesting. You know, and, and also because it gets, I think in the popular mind, it's intermixed with say iHeartRadio, which many, most of those stations are terrestrial broadcasters who pay an entirely different rate for, uh, for being on the air, or it gets sort of confused with, you know, listening to your local NPR station online. Yeah. Which is paying even still a different rate if they play any music uh, on the on their web stream, and they pay a significantly lower rate. And that what is not always clear to folks is that there is this whole other kind of ecosystem yeah. of internet only. And 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 the reason why and, and the other part of it why I worry is that you know it's interesting. So I'm also been you know a watcher of pirate radio, unlicensed radio, and low power FM, and. Pirate Radio had sort of a, a, a big surge of activity in the late 90s. That's right. And continued on through the 2000s. And Low Power FM kind of took some of that energy away because it, for community broadcasters, it gave them a route right. to inexpensively and more easily getting a radio license. But so, a lot of people stayed put because they couldn't even get Low Power right. FM or for other reasons. But then it was often proposed, well, internet radio is is your outlet, right? Sure. Internet radio is your pirate radio. But now I think we risk creating like internet pirate radio. In that you're a pirate because you are evading the payment of these fees, of these royalty payments. And I don't think that's a regime that the music industry wants to create. Um, I can't imagine how it's in their best interest to create a regime in which they basically say that well there is no alternative either you can come up with 12 14 you know twenty thousand dollars a year or you can just try to hide and hope we don't find your stream or figure out a way to go overseas figure out a way to or to originate your music outside the u.s originate your station outside the u.s so that you would ostensibly not be liable but who knows i'm not a lawyer and i don't want to tell anyone that, that they should do that and that's that's going to work we should mention, just in case, I don't know if we laid the groundwork when we started this conversation, that um, 
online only radio stations like college stations are not subject to these new rate increases. They, yes, they, like, they, like the kind of station that Jennifer toured mm-hmm. uh, when she went to KUSF and looked at their online station. They they're in the clear. For yeah, they have they have groups advocating on their behalf. So there are groups that advocate on behalf of college radio, non-commercial radio. And as part of their advocacy, they advocate for both terrestrial stations and online stations. So yes, for the KUSS and for other university stations that are online only, um, they'll continue to pay more or less the same rates that they have been paying. Um, it is really the, the non-affiliated independent stations right. that are uh, that are really facing these fees. So we'll continue to watch, but I think you know it helps to continually to remind people what the stakes are here mm-hmm. of of radio diversity and and stations that often focus on genres and subgenres that even don't have very much play in college and community radio, um, and that means this overall reduction, I think, in in diversity and, and and in service to artists in service to especially emerging artists artists working in in new genres or, or working in new forms who are not going to be played on clear channel and yeah. may never even get picked up by npr music uh we also know of uh more than a few examples of people who have gotten together to found low power fm stations or other community stations that prior to getting on the airwaves uh, terrestrially, they put in the uh, the effort to be an online radio station for for even a number of years as they sort of gather their momentum. Uh, I imagine that now that that outlet for 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 that kind of group is now uh, also maybe discouraging. Not, yeah, yeah, it may be discouraging. I I don't know offhand if maybe they can't incorporate as a nonprofit and perhaps uh, be able to take advantage of any of these rate differences. I honestly just don't know off get, the top of my get head. Get near a college and, yeah. and partner with them. Yeah. Exactly. So that might be possible, but right, it, it by placing all that friction in the system, it may just stop people from doing it altogether. Yeah. Whereas up to now, getting a live 365 account and poning up the $20 a month was pretty low friction. Yeah. You know, and then sure your rates would change, Based on how many listeners you had, but it was sort of a you could it was sort of predictable one and two you could choose you could say well I only want to support forty eight simultaneous listeners or ninety six sure. or, or one on and on and on and choose your level and pay that rate me and, and my Facebook friends yeah and that sort of possibility seems to be going away it's something we'll continue to chart here at Radio Survivor you're not hearing about it many other places. I will point out, um, but we feel that it is really important to the future of radio, period, that we look out for these small and medium-sized webcasters. Yeah, that my mind is cooking up a metaphor that's half-baked at the moment, but it's something, it's it's related to the small webcasters, as well as the kind of radio stations that Jennifer likes to tour, as well as everything we talk about on Radio Survivor. They're all sort of the small potatoes uh, world of radio. Um, that that are overlooked when you looked at the in the mainstream in particular yeah, the big the big grand Idaho baked potato uh, world of mainstream media we're 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 here on, we're we're for the artisanal small potatoes um, like I said it was a half baked metaphor but I'm gonna go work on it's it it's a half baked potato exactly as but opposed ra- to a twice baked radio potato. survivor cares about these half baked small potatoes do I hear a thrice baked potato if you have a better metaphor dear listener and you're you're scratching your head right now trying to help me come up with it uh, do give us an email reach out uh, podcast 
at radiosurvivor.com. Yes, and of course, go to radiosurvivor.com to learn more about all of these issues with uh, fresh reports every single weekday. And you can find the podcast there if you want to find notes about everything we talked about at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Right, we should definitely have links to... uh, the, the recent episodes where we talked about these small webcasters and what they're going through. There's no, you know, last time I, I reported on this story uh, in previous decades, there's a really uh, PR people that like, came up with a good, like, phrase that we could label it. Uh, you know, I think Web Radio in Peril became the, the name of my documentary because I heard a guy say it at a hearing in front of Congress. They, we don't have the... Uh, we don't have the word for what tiny webcasters and small and medium-sized webcasters are going through right now. No, no. I, I, they have radio diversity, but that's more of the positive side, yeah. not the... Because uh... back in previous... The previous story, um, Pandora was lumped in, so they had the... Uh, they were a small startup then. That was a part of the PR budget, I believe, to save their to save their business. Uh, so and in the past, Live 365 would have been yeah. would have been contributing, but they, they are no so, more. So the, the, the public relations efforts... Uh, do not exist. All you get is Radio Survivor uh, workshopping the the name of the crisis on the air right right before your ears. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this week. And thanks, Eric, for joining me. Hey, thank you, Paul. Thank you for letting me workshop ideas out loud. <laughs>